Judging by the looks on the adults' faces, it looks like they had a really good time and wore us out in the process. Um, let's pray, and we're going to have a VBS-themed message for the adults today. So hopefully it'll be uh, appropriate for right where you are and that uh, God's Word will meet you where you are. So let's pray, and uh, we'll jump in. So, Father, um, thank you that you're a God who rescues God, when we cry out, you hear us. God, that you are an ever-present help in trouble. God, that there is not one situation we'll ever face in this life, if we're in Christ Jesus, that we'll face alone. That you won't be present, that you won't be active, that you won't be rescuing us. And God, we need to be rescued. We need to be rescued as um, husbands and wives. Because we are selfish and we want our ways and our kingdom. We need to be rescued as parents, God, because we get so off track. We aim at the wrong stuff. We chase the wrong stuff. We get angry or we get bothered or we get restless or we get busy. God, we need you to rescue us as, as employees because we want to make our boss God and control us. Or we want to make work God and find our worth there We need you to rescue us father from our selfishness from our pride from our greed from our uh, Wanting our own ways and driving for our own ways and blowing up the relationships we have from it And so god we're asking you to rescue today And we need you to rescue us from above everything else sin We are born slaves to sin. We are born under the God of this present age. We are born under the prince of the power of the air. We are separated from you. And Lord, there is not a work we can do. There's not a church we can attend. There's not a song we can sing to make it right. We need you to rescue. And so I pray you would rescue us from our religion. You would rescue us from our irreligion. You would rescue us with Jesus. And even this sermon, God, my best effort needs to be rescued by Jesus because only your word is alive and only your word is active and only your word pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. Only your word judges the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And so let your word go deeply. Let your word run fast. Let your word find good soil and bear fruit. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to walk you through a couple of stories before we get to our main story. And so it's been a long day of teaching for Jesus, and he sends his disciples forward on a boat. And then he goes up into the mountain to pray. And the boat gets a good way off of shore, and he comes down, and he decides he will just walk on water and catch up to the boat. And when he gets close, the disciples, they're terrified and they think they've seen a ghost. And Jesus is like, don't be afraid. It's me. And good old Peter, Lord, if it really is you, tell me to come out and I'll go walk on the water too. And Jesus is like, come on. And Jesus is walking on the water. And then all of a sudden he feels the wind. And all of a sudden he sees the waves raging around him and he begins to sink. And he's like, Lord, help me. And Jesus lifts him up. Why do you doubt? You have little faith. And they go back to the boat. And the disciples worship. Because Jesus rescues. 
And a lot of things seem to happen on water. And so they go out on a boat after a long day of teaching and they're crossing the lake to go to the other side. And it's been, it's in the evening time at this point. And so Jesus goes up to the front of the boat and he lays on the cushion and he goes to sleep. But a great windstorm arises on the lake and these seasoned fishermen are terrified because the boat is shaking and water is coming into the boat and filling and they wake up Jesus. Don't you even care that we're perishing? And so Jesus stands up and he looks at the waves and he looks at the wind and he says, peace, be still. And it was still and there's no wind and there was a great calm over the lake. And the disciples were even more terrified. Who is this that the winds and the sea obey him? Because Jesus rescues. And then on a more personal level, Jesus is walking through a town. And he's mobbed by people everywhere he goes. People wall to wall pressing in on him. And a man named Jairus comes and he says, My daughter, my only daughter, she's six, she's about to die. And she was 12 years old at the time. Will you come? And so Jesus begins to make his way. But then another daughter appears on the scene. And this woman had had an issue of blood, meaning she had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And she had spent all her money on more and more painful treatments and all of her time and all of her hope on more and more doctors and physicians. And we're not talking about antibiotics. We're talking about horrible ancient medical practices. And yet there was no cure and she's broke, and she's isolated, and she just reaches out to touch the edge of Jesus' garment. And immediately, her issue of blood is dried up. But Jesus isn't content with this yet. And so Jesus stops the crowd, stops everything, stops going to Jairus' house, and is like, who touched me? And the disciples. All right, Jesus, like, there's a mob around you. Everybody touched you. And he's like, no. Power has gone out from me. And the woman, knowing that she's caught, comes and falls at Jesus' feet. And he looks at her. Daughter. Daughter who has been isolated for 12 years. Daughter who has had pain inflicted on her for 12 years. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And then word comes to Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And Jesus is like, don't doubt. Believe. And he goes to the house and he's like, why are y'all crying? She's just asleep. She's not dead. And they laughed at Jesus. She's dead. What are you talking about? We know what dead looks like. And he puts everybody out except for mom and dad. And he says, child, get up. And she gets up. Because Jesus rescues people. And then one of his disciples is in a bit of trouble. James has just been killed. um, One of the first martyrs of the church. The first apostle to be martyred. He's just been killed and everybody cheered for it. And so Herod's like, you know what? If that got me some good brownie points with the people, we'll arrest Peter and we'll take care of him next. And so Peter is sitting in a jail cell awaiting execution the next day. Guard on one side, guard on the other side, chained in stocks. And you know what he's doing? I just imagine Peter's a snorer. That's Chris's interpretation, not the Bible, right? So I think he's, he's asleep just sawing logs, snoring away so deeply that an angel comes to rescue him and he's got to bang him in the side. Wake up, dude. 
And his chains immediately fall off. He's like, get dressed. And so Peter gets dressed and he's saying, okay, this must be a dream. This must be a vision. Okay. And so he gets dressed and he gets awake and they walk out and they come to the iron gate that lets out of the prison. And it opens up on its own and they take a little side street and the angel disappears. And then Peter's like, wait, wait, I guess this isn't a vision. And so he goes to Mary's house, who's John Mark's mom, and a church meets there and they're praying. And so he knocks on the door and a little servant girl comes out and she's like, oh man, it's Peter, it's Peter. And she doesn't even open the door. She's so excited. She goes back and they're like, no, you're just seeing things. And then they let Peter in and he tells him what has happened. And then he departs away because Jesus rescues. And then the last one. So Paul and Silas start a church based on a vision of God. They start a church in, uh, in Philippi. They meet a lady named Lydia, who is a wealthy merchant, seller of purple clothing. God opens her heart. She believes the gospel. She's saved. She invites them into her home. There's also this slave girl who is demon-possessed, and she makes her masters a fortune because she's a fortune teller through the demonic spirit that's in her. So she's in bondage, and Paul sets her free. The problem with setting free people that make their masters a lot of money is their masters get really mad when they lose a lot of money. And so they start a riot. They beat Paul. They turn him over to and Silas. They turn him over to the officials, and the officials have them beaten officially. And then they throw them in prison, in the very inner part of the prison, it says, and they lock their feet into stocks. And then midnight comes around. And they're not doing what you would do. Moaning and groaning and, oh, my back hurts and I can't believe I'm in this dark dungeon and what did I do wrong? Or Silas, what did you do wrong? How did you get us into this mess? That's what you would do and that's what I would do. But it's midnight and do you know what's happening? They are praying and singing the praises of God. They're praying and they're singing hymns. And do you know what it says? The prisoners are listening. Prisoners would have been listening if they had moaned and groaned too. But they're praising and they're praying and they're singing and the other prisoners are listening. And then a great earthquake shakes the prison and all the prison doors open up. And the jailer runs in and he sees that the doors are open. And since he realizes if his prisoners are escaped, it's on him, it's his life, he takes out his sword to kill himself. And Paul's like, don't, don't, don't hurt yourself. We're all here. And so he calls for the torches and he comes and checks. And he falls down at the feet of Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You and your household. And he teaches the word of God to the household. And the, the, the jailer wipes the wounds of Paul and cleanses the wounds of Paul. And then Paul washes the jailer. He's baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rescues people. Jesus rescues people. And now the story that I want us to zero in on today. I think it's Uncle Tony's story. So they come across the lake and they land on the shore of a place called Gadaria, the land of the Gerizines. And there's a demon-possessed man there. And this demon-possessed man... This is the kind of thing that gets pastors in trouble. So I'm going to just go ahead and tell you in advance. Don't write any dirty notes. If you do, it's office at fmbaptist.org. Because when pastors say naked in church two out of three weeks, like 
That's the kind of thing that gets us in trouble. But this guy's naked. It's in the Bible. So you can't get too mad at me, right? So he has no clothes on. He hadn't had clothes on for a really long time. So he's naked and he's been away from his home a long time. And uh, he would be driven out into the desert and he would live in the tombs among the dead people. And so you've got town, you've got community, you've got family, you've got home, you've got clothes. And he lives out in the tombs. And Jesus pulls up onto the shore and the man runs out to him. And he falls down at the feet of Jesus and the demon within him speaks. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Have you come to torment me before the time? And so he falls down and he asks him that. And this demon had seized him from time to time and the the townspeople would try to restrain him. They put chains on him and he would break the chains off and he would be driven back out in the desert to go live in the tombs where the dead people are. Right? So that's his lot. And another uh, text that says he would cut himself with stones. And this is this man's lot in life. And then I want you to see these words. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for we are many demons that injured him. And look at this. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And there was a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And then the demons left the man and they went into the pigs. And I would love to be able to tell you, I've thought a lot about this one. I have no clue why. They go into the pigs. The pigs run down the mountain. They go into the lake and they drown there and they die. And all the people that are watching the the pigs, all the herdsmen see what has taken place and they run back through the countryside and they run back to town and they say, here's what has happened. This is what has happened to the guy we all know, the guy that we've chained up, the guy that runs around naked. This is what's happened. And so all the people come out of the towns and out of the hillsides, out to to, to where this has happened, out to the shore. And they find a guy who is no longer wild in his eyes who is no longer unkempt and controlled by demons, who is no longer insane visibly, but sitting in his right mind, fully clothed at the feet of Jesus. Because Jesus rescues people. And the townspeople see this and they are terrified. And they say, Jesus, please leave us. They beg him to leave. And so Jesus says, okay, I'll go. And he gets onto his boat ready to leave. And the man who had been possessed by demons begs him, I want to be with you. I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no. Go back to town. Go back to your community. Go back to where you're from. And tell him everything that God's done for you. And he does this amazing thing. He doesn't have a Sunday school class about it. He doesn't form a church committee. He doesn't start an evangelism initiative program. He just goes and does what Jesus says. And he goes through that town. And in another text, it says he goes through the Decapolis, the 10 cities. He goes through the 10 surrounding cities and says, here's what God's done. Here's the mercy of God. Here's what God's done. Here's the mercy of God. Here's how Jesus rescues. And that's what we see about this man. And so... Originally, this was a VBS message with the kids present, so I'm not going to make y'all do the Jesus rescues point, but I want you to see some of the themes we walked through today in this man's life. When we're lonely, Jesus... Okay, there's one. There we are. And we might think, well, lonely is one of those little mushy, you know, 
sensitive, new American words. No, lonely is relational brokenness and relational isolation, which is absolutely opposite of God's design for humanity. God has existed within the Trinity in fellowship with himself for all eternity. And then when he created man, the one thing that is not good is that man is alone. It is not good for man to be in isolation from people. It is not good to be lonely. Whether you're in a crowd of people that care about you or all by yourself, loneliness is a result of the fall. Broken relationships are a result of the fall. Being withdrawn from community is a result of the fall. And so Jesus rescues us from loneliness and When we struggle, there you go. Okay, we got it. When we struggle, Jesus rescues. And again, what is this? No, when we struggle, that means the external fall has landed in our laps and it has affected our lives in a way that deeply challenges us. And so struggle is a biblical category. Struggle is the fall pressing against my life that I didn't create and that I didn't have a part in. It just visited me because I live in a fallen world. And Jesus rescues from that. This guy's demon-possessed. He didn't do anything to get demon-possessed, at least not in the text that we know about. Everything about him is he is being tormented from the outside. He is being pressed on by the fall from the outside. And so he's struggling, and he has done wrong. He has sinned. Jesus rescues sinners too. And he's powerless. There's no exorcist that can help. The chains of the town people to try to restrain him and control him couldn't help. He can't cast the demons out of himself. Can't help. There is no hope for this man's life. No rescue. Unless something changes. Let's get into it. Jesus still rescues people. Without Jesus, we are hopeless and powerless. Without Jesus, we are hopeless and powerless. Anywhere in the world... Anywhere in your life, anywhere in the life of a person apart from Christ, anywhere that Jesus is absent, a measure of hopelessness is present. A measure of powerless is present. But you think, I kind of got it under control. Things are going okay for me. I can manage it. And so we go from, you know, like walking through the desert, and we it's the mirage, right? An oasis is an actual water, and a mirage is fake water, I think. So we go, like, walking through this desert land, and look, there's a mirage up ahead, and we dip our cup and take a big sip of sand, but it looked like refreshing water to my soul. And instead of turning back, we keep going. Oh, maybe there's another one in the distance, and so we walk into the distance. We dip our cup, and we take a big sip of sand from this world, and we look from mirage to mirage to satisfy our souls and there's no satisfaction there there's only more hopelessness but we're so foolish because sin is foolish that we go to the next one and the next one and the next one maybe if i'm successful maybe if i get promoted maybe if i get the right relationship maybe if i get enough money maybe if i get the right car maybe if i get the right house maybe if i move the right town maybe if i have the right friends sand Sand, sand, sand. Because when we try to do life and when we try to find satisfaction where Jesus is not active and Jesus is not present, it can't be found. Everywhere where Jesus is absent is hopeless. And so when we try to do our marriages like it's me and her or you and him and we functionally live like Jesus isn't present... And there's some measure of hopelessness, some measure of disunity, some measure of division, some measure of coldness, some measure of living like roommates. 
And then we're wondering, why doesn't it work out? Well, I'll go to a retreat. Oh, I tried so hard. It just couldn't work. I, I guess my only option is to go. It's too hard. It's too miserable. Because when we try to do life without Jesus present, it is hopeless. When we try to do our parenting where Jesus is not present, it's hopeless. Right? If I just get them into enough activities, it'll keep them from doing the bad stuff. If they play enough sports, they won't get in with the wrong crowd. Right? Or if we consume ourselves with their activities over and over again, it'll fix it. They'll be fine. If we just get them the right education, if we make them do their homework. And we do, and then we sit and we watch them. And they have no concern for the things of God. And they're consumed with the screen in front of them. And they are consumed with hours and hours and hours on their phone. With no concern for God whatsoever. Because anytime we do life or any area of our life where Jesus is not present, there's a measure of hopelessness there. And then people that are apart from Christ who are lost. The Bible says they are dead in their sins and trespasses. Without hope and without God in the world. Because anywhere Jesus is absent, it's hopeless. And some level, some measure of hopelessness works its way out into their life. And that's where we find this guy. Let's look at him. So this is a place where Jesus is absent. This man's life, there is no Jesus there. He's not present. He's not active. He's not central. And what's in its place is this man is demon-possessed. And so everything about his life, the community that he was a part of, the home and family that he was a part of, the clothes that he had that he got to wear... Instead of that, he runs around naked. Don't tell your parents I said that. Right? He's walking around naked. He's living not with the people that would be his community, but he's living with dead people. He is away from his home and has been for a long time. He's away from his community, has been a long time. If he does go back, they chain him. And then the demon gives him strength and he breaks out and he goes back to where the dead people are. And that's a very graphic, very visual picture of the hopelessness apart from Christ. What areas of your life is Jesus not present and active? You're like, I go to church. He's everywhere. I even go to Sunday school. Of course, he's in my marriage. I even go to, you know, a Bible study. I go to Wednesday night. Of course, he's in my parenting or my work. Or my relationships. Or whatever the thing is. Where's the fight of faith in your marriage? Where's the fight of faith in raising your kids? Where's the fight of faith to work heartily as unto the Lord? To display Jesus by the creative work that you do right where you are. Where is the gospel? Where is the forgiveness? Where is the loving your enemies? Where is blessing the cursors? Where is it? This man is hopeless apart from Christ. And you think about it, he is demon-possessed, and everything that was good about his life has been taken from him. There's no more hiding behind, I work. There's no more hiding behind, I've got a decent home in the community. 
There's no more hiding behind people know me around town. There's no more hiding around clothes. He is completely exposed and everything about his life that was any good at all has been stripped from him. And there is zero hope that it will change. There was no hope in the chains. There was no hope in family pleading. There was no hope in whatever may have led up to this. Zero hope. And there's no power. He can't change himself, right? People can't change him. Whoever else may have tried can't change him. He is powerless. He is hopeless. He is, the door is nailed shut when we meet this guy. And this is the end result. Extreme. You're probably not demon possessed. I really hope not. You're probably not at that level. But there's a measure of hopelessness in your life because there's parts of your life where Jesus is not central. There's parts of your life where Jesus is not treasured. There's parts of life where Jesus' gospel is not driven to the relationship, driven to the circumstance, driven to that part of your heart and your life, driven to that corner of your heart that still is an act of rebellion to God. And I just want you to see that it's hopeless and that you are powerless. Because I want you to feel the weight of hopelessness. And if you're apart from Christ, I want you to feel the weight of hopelessness. You may have a good job. Things may be going really well. You may be a member of the church. And it's worthless if you're apart from Jesus Christ. It's worthless if Jesus is not the treasure of your life. And so maybe you aren't hopeless and things are fine and manageable. Or maybe there is one little baby hair-sized strand of hope that you are clinging to for your marriage or clinging to for your kids or clinging to for your work or clinging to for whatever and you're just barely hanging on to it. I want you to feel the hopelessness of anything apart from Jesus. I want you to feel the weight of how ultimately hopeless it is. And I want you to remember this isn't the end of the story yet. I want you to remember that this isn't the end of the story yet. Because Jesus is about to show up. Jesus is about to enter the scene. Jesus is about to be present. Which leads us to our next point. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. When Jesus' boat docks on the shore of your life or the shore of your circumstances, everything changes or everything can change. And so one of the ways that we go through life is that we kind of go through life, I've got this, I'm going to do this, I'm working, I'm fine, i got family, we got our priorities, we got our schedules, we're doing our thing, and then we get into trouble and all of a sudden God becomes the genie in the lamp, Right? If I just rub God the right way, if I just pray the right way, God pops out, solves my problems, and then he's a very nice God, so he goes back in the bottle, back into the distant, dusty corners of my life, and then I get to go do my life again. And I get to go be fine again, and I get to manage everything, and I get to have my priorities, and I get to have my schedule, and I get to do what I want to do. Oh, and then I get in trouble again, and I just rub God, you know, the the little God lamp again, and just pray the right prayer, and he pops out and saves me, and then he goes back into the nice little corner. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. Quote a famous elderly lady in a commercial. That's not how this works. 
at all. How many times have you done it? How many times have you done it with your marriage, or with your parenting, with all the circumstances we just talked about? How many times have you done it in your neighborhood or with your neighborhood, with your friends, with your relationships? How many times have you done it? And it's like, I'm just going to kind of do my thing. And then, God, would you pop out and save me? Or, God, I kind of showed up for a couple hours this week. Where's the blessing? What do you, where's the goodie? And then, you know, make sure you're tame and go back to the dark corners of, of my thing. And then I'll come get you. When it's holy time again. Or I'll come get you when I'm in trouble. But just kind of stay back there. And so we operate our life as if God's not present. And so all there is is circumstances and me. And so my circumstances are good and things are good. My circumstances become really challenging and heartbreaking and troubling. And all of a sudden me is heartbroken and me is troubled. And all there is is circumstances in me. What do I do? Are we doing marriages that way? All there is is she and I. When it's going good, that's great. But when it's not, we're fighting, we're warring, and there's just us. And so we're either going to be miserable or we're going to be separate or we're going to be roommates and cold and isolated or we're going to just have to be apart. Because we're the only two people in the equation. But that's not true. Your circumstances in you are not the complete equation. Your job problems in you are not the only part of the equation. Your boss and you are not the only part of the equation. Your wife and you, your husband and you are not the only parts of the equations. Your kid and you are not the only parts of the equation. Your neighbor that drives you nuts, not the only part of the equation. Because think about it, there's, there's us, that's it. Unless we realize that Jesus drops into the shore of our life and everything changes. And now there's not just this or that solutions anymore. There's a whole third option that Jesus can restore broken things. There's this whole new option that Jesus can bring flourishing where we have destroyed everything and made a wreck of it. All of a sudden it's not just... I've got to get out of this circumstance or it's going to break me. And No, there's Jesus over my circumstances. Or I've got to have this relationship. I've got to either be out of this relationship or you've got to do what I want in this relationship. Wait, wait, Jesus is now present. And when Jesus is present, things change. When Jesus is present, there is hope. When Jesus is present, freedom is given. And when Jesus is present, the heartbreak that this world brings or that other people dump into your life can be carried because he will carry them. Everything changes when Jesus docks on the shore of your life. Let's look at it as we look at this guy's story continue. All right, so we've got the guy. Was part of a community, had a home, had clothes and everything. They may have even been really nice clothes. We don't know, right? And so he's got all these things until he becomes possessed by a demon. And it's not just one. It's a legion of them. It's many of them. And he loses community. He loses home. He loses family. He loses clothes. He loses any interaction with living people and instead dwells among the dead as one of them. And he's powerless and he's hopeless. That's point one, right? I want you to feel it. I want you to know that it's hopeless. Because then I want you to see what changes when Jesus docks on the shore of this man's life and he walks up and the man comes led by the demons that would appear and look at the demons. Like they get to attention and they fall at the feet of Jesus. And then I want you to look at verse 28. They beg him. 
And then I want you to look at verse 31. They beg him. And then I want you to look at verse 32. They beg him. And then I want you to look at verse 32 again. Jesus gives them permission. This man is powerless, chained, and, and dominated by these demons that own him. These demons are powerful. These demons are controlling. That is until the sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe steps on this shore, and now the demons must bow to him instead of control someone else. And now the sovereign savior of the world has just walked up into this man's life and the demons have fallen before him and begged him and gotten permission from him to do anything that they want to do. And so what is all powerful in this man's life bows to Jesus. And what is all powerful in your life that is, if it's not God, will bow to Jesus. Because that's the kind of power that an all-powerful God has. That's the kind of power that a God who speaks and all of creation comes into the being just by the power of his words. That's the kind of power that the one in him, all things consist, all things hold together. Every atom and molecule of the earth stays in its right place because of the word of the Savior. And that's the kind of power that he has, whether it be to make your circumstances bow or to lift you up in the midst of circumstances that would crush you. Because what seems all-powerful to you bows to Jesus. And that's what happens in this man's life. Nothing will ever be the same about this man again. Nothing will ever be the same about these herdsmen again. Nothing will ever be the same about this town again. Nothing will ever be the same because Jesus has been there. And again, I, I, I have thought about this a lot. And I've, I'm like, okay, what's the deal? This is just my curiosity, so it's free. And what's the deal with the demons go into the pigs? They want to go into the pigs and then they run down the hill and die. I'm like, I don't get it. Right? So it doesn't make sense to me. Okay. They go in the pigs. They live in the pigs. That's fine. But what, what's the whole running in and drowning? That seems to defeat the purpose of having a place to go. Again, that's Chris's musings. If you figure it out, you can send me an email. That one you can send to my real email. Uh, everything else you can send to Josiah. He's a great filter for these things. So they run down the hill and then the herdsmen run off and the town comes back. And what do they find when he comes back? This guy had cleaned himself up and bought a new wardrobe. That's what they find. No, they don't find that. What they find is that Jesus has walked into his life, has rebuked the all-controlling force of his life, has sent the all-controlling force of his life away from him, rescued him, restored him, saved him. And they find this man restored they find the wildness gone. They find the evil gone. They find the insanity gone. They find the nakedness gone. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, whole. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, made right again. That's what they find. Because the man cleaned himself up? No. Because Jesus went down and claimed him and rescued him. And that's what they find. So where is Jesus missing from the picture of your life? Where is Jesus missing from the picture of your life? Where are you trying to do it without him? Where are you trying to make it on your own? Where is it just circumstances in you with no place for God? Where is it just relationship problem in you? Where is it just husband in you or wife in you? Where is that true in your life? And I want to plead with you to invite Jesus to land on that shore. Or maybe it's your whole life. And you're a good person. 
and you're a religious person, and you're a church person, or you're a good neighbor, or you're nice, or you lend milk. But Jesus is not present as your rescuer. You see, God is a holy, stunningly, beautifully different than we will ever be. He is holy with eyes that are like flames of fire melting away all that is worthless. He is stunningly, beautifully holy. And he made you. He gets the rights. And that's not you. It wasn't me. Because I am sinful and you are sinful. From the core of our being out. And we are separated from a holy God by our sin. And And that's where we are. And it's, the Bible says that you are without hope. The Bible says that you're an enemy, but you don't feel like an enemy. God seems fine. The big man upstairs and I got an agreement. You're an enemy of God. And you can try and you can work and you can do religion and you can give money and you can be nice. And it will never get to God. So God stooped to you. God became flesh. God dwelt among us. God lived the sinless life you could not live. God died on a cross for your sins. God was raised again from the dead. God sent God, the Holy Spirit, to press conviction upon your heart, to show you Jesus to save you. And only those who turn, we use the word repent, only those who do a 180, who turn from their sin, who turn from their selfishness, who turn from them being the Lord of their lives and their desires being the gods they pursue. To faith, to Jesus alone to save them. And the Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord, he will save. He won't save the ones that work hard because he doesn't help those who help themselves. He'll save the ones who turn in belief. That's the offer. That's the offer of mercy. One last step quickly as we finish up. When people meet Jesus, they must respond to Jesus. When people meet Jesus, they must respond to Jesus. Whether it's VBS week, whether it's a coffee shop, whether it's a thousand other places where you have a conversation with someone that's far from God, or whether it's, um, you know, just in a sermon or in Sunday school, wherever it is that Jesus is shown and Jesus is shared, A response is always present. It is either response of one more layer of callous, one more layer of hardening, one more layer of distance between you and God, or one more layer of tenderness, one more layer of openness, one more layer of desire towards God. And that is true if you're apart from God and he's pursuing you, but it's also true if you're in Christ But there's areas of your life that you keep hearing him press on. And you keep hearing the word press on. And you keep hearing the spirit press on. Not yet. Not today. Maybe later. But I'd rather. And we put layer after layer after layer after layer of protective film, of calloused film between our hearts and God. But there is a response. 
are. There's one more layer of yes, Lord. One more layer of do this transforming work in me, Lord. One more layer of rescue, Lord. One more layer of tenderness of exposing my heart to God and responding to God. But there is a response. Let's look at it as the text closes out. And so they've walked through this. There's the isolated made whole, the insane made sane, the naked made clothed, the distance brought near. And then there's these people that see the work of God right there in front of them who have heard the eyewitnesses' testimony. Here's what Jesus did. And their response is they're terrified, they're in awe, and they beg Jesus to leave. Can you imagine that? Let's have a feast. We have been restored. Let's have a feast. This man has been set free and made whole. Let's have a feast. Jesus is here. Would you set us all free? Would you heal us all? Would you rescue us all? Would you redeem us all? Jesus, come into town. No. They have seen the work of Jesus and allowed whatever they allowed fear to get in the way and said, Jesus, would you leave instead? Like you can imagine what Jesus would do if he had showed up in town because you have story after story of what Jesus does when he walks into towns. And they cut themselves off from all of it because of their fear. And it's shocking. Like, what? Okay, that's what you do. But look at the other response. This man made whole by the grace of Jesus Christ, by the pure mercy of God. Jesus, please let me follow you. Jesus, I just want to be with you. And that's what it looks like when Jesus sets people free. It doesn't look like mere religion and mere externalism. It looks like somebody that wants to be with Jesus because they know Jesus is the one that made them free. And Jesus says, no. I've got something else. And he sends him back to his hometown Sends him back to the ten city area and says, you go say what, you go tell people what God has done. You go tell people about the mercy of God. You know how many evangelism classes were in that one verse? Zero. And then I looked and I was like, how many Sunday school classes were in that like zero? How many sermons or gospel presentations was he taught? Zero. What did this guy have to offer then? A living encounter with the mercy of God was all this man needed to declare the mercy of God. Have you had a living encounter with the mercy of God? Because that's all it takes to offer the mercy of God to other people. Is it helpful to learn? Yes, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it helpful to have training? Sure. But if you have a living encounter with mercy, you can't help but declare mercy. If you have a living encounter with mercy, you can't help but give mercy to your wife all of a sudden. If you have a living encounter with mercy, you can't help but give mercy to your husband all of a sudden. If you have a living encounter with mercy, you can't help but give mercy to your kids and mercy to your neighbors and mercy to the people that are in your microgroups and mercy to the people in church with you and mercy into the Sunday school classes you're a part of. You can't help but mercy to flow out if you have a living encounter with mercy. And that's what this guy did. There's always going to be a response when you encounter Jesus. And so my prayer is not that you will learn one new thing about Jesus today, though I hope you will. My prayer is that Jesus will encounter you and will encounter me with mercy. So that mercy comes out of us all week long. So that mercy starts to replace 
judgment and self-righteousness and criticism and lust and whatever else is gunking up your heart, that mercy will take its place. And then that mercy will be what comes out of your lips. And mercy will be comes out of your lives. That's the prayer. A couple of quick practical things as we close. Jesus rescues from lostness. Be saved. All I can do is lay it upon your heart. This is the truth. You have a need of the mercy of God. And there's no amount of choices and good things you can do to make it up. You can bow to Jesus and call on his name and his name alone to save you. And that is the only way. Second, Jesus rescues from hopelessness. So cling to hope. Where is hope fraying in your life? Where is the thought that there's just not a way back? There's not a way to fix it. There's not a way for it to be right again. There's not a way to get through this and what this other person has done to me. When Jesus shows up on the shore of your life, everything changes. It changes to sustain you from the tragic break of the fall, from the horrors of what other people do, or it shows up on the shore of life and it can actually change. He can actually change circumstances. And whichever it is, he'll be sufficient for. Jesus rescues us from hopelessness. Don't give up hope. Don't quit. Don't turn back. Don't run out. You find another believer that will wrap their arms around you and not let you go until you see, until you believe, until you encounter this mercy again. Lean into your family. Lean into your church community. Lead into your microgroup. Lead, lead into Christ. And you just cling to hope until hope shows up. And the last one, Jesus rescues us to community and mission. Jesus rescues us to community and to mission. Dive in. Have you been standing on the fringes of relationships and the fringes of community and the fringes of church life? And, you know, it, I'll just be a spectator. I'll just kind of watch from here and see what happens. See if they're real enough. I promise you're going to get in close and you're going to find there's some jacked up people. You're going to find out they aren't quite as perfect as you might think. And in that moment, are you going to embrace kind of the rugged reality of Jesus is redeeming us together? Or are you going to, ah, see, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And you're going to give one more excuse not to be part of the community. One more excuse not to press into each other. One more excuse to not let the gospel bind you with another person and change you together. And then mission. Jesus rescues us so that we become people who offer his rescue to others. People who leave seats open at our table for those who are far from God to get close to God and those who are close to God to become children of God and our family together. People who orient their summers and orient their trips to splash with one more towel next to them, one more seat next to them for someone to join in. That orient our lives around those who are close to God and help us in the gospel and those who are far from God and need the gospel and our lives revolve around those things. Dive into that. Jesus still rescues people. Jesus still rescues marriages. Jesus still rescues kids. Jesus still rescues our frantic, worried um, work issues. Jesus still rescues people. Let's pray. Father, we bow our hearts as those who need rescuing and those who have rescued offer.
because we're both. We're frail people and we're redeemed people. God, we're broken people and we're people being made whole. And so God, I pray that you would lay on our hearts again to be a rescuing people. I pray for my own life and I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room.